All right. Last Sunday night, we uh, talked about immutability, and I said it sounds like a disease that Patrick has. He just cannot be muted. If you've never heard of immutability, go look it up, and you'll find that that's not what it means, but either way. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 990. Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> As a society, we seem to be having a, sort of a slow motion reckoning with how widespread and pervasive different forms of abuse have been. None of this is new, of course. It's just coming to light in new ways and uh, one detail that we keep seeing over and over and over again is that there was almost always someone who knew the truth, someone who could have done something about it but chose for whatever reason not to believe, not to investigate, not to act upon the things they, they knew. In fact, just this past week I saw a headline about Kathy Clagus, who was an employee at Michigan State University who had credible accusations about Larry Nassar and the way he had abused young girls and chose not to do anything because it would have been terribly inconvenient for her. Um, in some cases, you think about uh, Jerry Sandusky, who was at Penn State. There were people there who seem to have fulfilled their legal obligation, and yet there is a vast canyon between obligation and love. You think about the parable that we call the Good Samaritan. It's a story about someone who was vulnerable, someone who needed help, and there were people who could have helped him, but to help would have been terribly inconvenient. There were some who passed by and saw the man in need. Jesus makes it clear that they saw him. The priest and the Levite both, Jesus specifically says, when they saw him, they passed by on the other side. So they were not ignorant to his plight. They simply deemed that the cost of helping him would be too high. And then came the Samaritan. And Jesus said that when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion. And that compassion moved him to action. He put himself at risk to get down in the dirt and bind up his wounds he put the injured man on his own animal. He took him to an inn and cared for him. And then as he was leaving, he paid the innkeeper and said, whatever amount he incurs when I leave, I'll come back and I will pay it in full. So that kind of mercy and kindness was costly and it was inconvenient. And yet that is what Jesus did for us. And it's what He calls us to do if we are following Him. Loving us was not convenient or easy. It was terribly costly and inconvenient for Him. And this morning, I want us to think about that canyon between obligation and love. The Bible uses a handful of words to describe what makes up the difference between one and the other, between obligation and love. Sometimes it's called kindness or mercy. But there is this sort of, there's one word that the Bible uses as kind of a catch-all, and it's the word goodness. And that's the biblical virtue that we're going to examine today, the virtue of goodness. So let's read together in Micah chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says, Hear what the Lord says. 
Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, this is your word, and because it's from you, it bears your authority and your truth and your power. And uh, God, I pray that you would help me today just to get out of the way of what you would have to say to your people God, help me to be a vessel that would be faithful to what you would have to say through your word. Spirit of God, we pray that you would move through this word that you inspired. Impress it upon our hearts. Help us to hear it from you. And help us to leave here changed by an encounter with you through your living and active word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... As we look at these eight verses, something that's going to really help you to make sense of them is if you understand that there's a conversation that's going on here. It sort of reads like a courtroom trial. At the beginning of the chapter, Micah summons all of creation as witness, and he says, Hear what the Lord says. And he has some bad news because he says that the Lord has an indictment, a, a charge against His people. They have done something wrong. And in verse 6, the question is posed, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So in verses 3, 4, and 5, you hear the indictment that the Lord has. And the indictment is, look at all that I've done for you. Listen to what I've done for you. I brought you from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He reminds them of the story in Numbers of Balak, king of Moab, who tried to hire a prophet to go and curse Israel, and instead God changed his heart and made him bless them. So he's reminding them of even when people tried to curse you, I turned it into a blessing. And then the question comes in verse 6, okay, now that we know that, what are we going to do? How should we approach this merciful God in light of our sin? And the answer is that the Lord does not delight in sacrifices. Even if we had ten thousands of rivers of oil that we could burn for Him, He would not be pleased with them. Instead, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I want to point out something very, very important before we get too far. 
And that is that you need to pay attention to who are the two people engaged in this conversation. This is not a conversation between God and unbelievers. If we took it that way, then what it sounds like God is saying is, I'm holy, here are all the good things I've done, you are sinful, and now here are the things you have to do to get right with me. You have to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly. And if you do those things, then you'll be in right standing with me. But that's not what's happening here. This is not a conversation between God and unbelievers. This is a conversation between God and His covenant people. Twice He refers to them as my people. Even when Micah says that the Lord has an indictment, it's an indictment against His people. And God reminds them in verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. So the question is not, what does the Lord require of an unbeliever for them to become a follower of Christ? What, is, what does the Lord require for someone to become His people? The question is, what does the Lord require of those who are already His people? What does the Lord require of those who, whom He has already redeemed? How are they to live as His people? Answer, this is what He requires. This is what He deems to be good, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So I want, you to, I want you to hear me here right now at the very beginning that if you're here today and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm right with God, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't know if I've ever surrendered to Jesus, then this is not for you. What you need to do is you need to trust in the Lord. You need to be redeemed. You need to be brought out of the house of slavery, figuratively speaking. Because right now, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then you are in the house of slavery. You're a slave to sin. And what you need to do is not to try harder, but you need to be redeemed. But if you have been redeemed, if the Lord has brought you out of your slavery to sin, then this is what He says is good. This is what He requires of you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I want us to zero in this morning on a word in verse 8, the word good. And what I want us to see is that the Bible uses the word good almost as many ways as we use the word good. Not in the same ways, but, but we use the word good all kinds of ways. I was trying to think of some examples of that. We use the word good to mean something like pleasant. We say that smells good or that tastes good. Uh, good can mean well-mannered or obedient. We say that's a, that's a good kid or or we, we say to a dog, who's a good boy? All right? uh, it can mean skilled, as in she's good at her job. Uh, you know, right now there are these commercials that, you know, just okay is not okay, right? You don't want to go to the surgeon and say everything's going to be okay. You don't want to go to the accountant and he say you're going to be okay after this. He want, you want to hear, I'm, I'm good at this. You're going to be good. Uh, we, we use good to mean correct, as in that was a good call. Or that was not a good call, depending on what side of the game you're on. We could think of, of many others, I'm sure, but you get the idea. We use good to mean all kinds of things. The Bible does the same thing. The Bible uses this word good as this catch-all to mean all kinds of things. Even in verse 8, you can see that goodness means at least three things. It means doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. So, biblical goodness is multifaceted. This week, what I did was I dug through the Bible and I said, okay, I want to try to wrap my mind around everything that the Bible means when it talks about goodness. Old Testament, New Testament, everything. 
And what I found was I spent almost a whole day doing that. It's, it's crazy. And so uh, I'm not going to walk us through everything. We're not going to try to cover everything. But what I want to do is I want to use Micah 6.8 as a template to help us see just three facets of biblical goodness. And it's like we're looking at three facets of an iceberg and we know that underneath it there is so much more, but we're just kind of trying to look in the time that we have. So three facets of biblical goodness. First, biblical goodness is faithfulness to God. He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to walk humbly with your God. Which is to say, you cannot pursue goodness, whatever it is, we're going to define it more clearly, but you cannot pursue it apart from a relationship with God. This is not a blueprint for how you can get God to accept you. First, He has to be your God. You have to be His people. We have to surrender to Him and receive Him as our Lord. But once He is my God, once He is your God, then He calls us to walk humbly with Him, to listen to His voice, which we hear in His Word, and follow Him. Psalm 23, verse 3, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He leads me, so it's His grace, and He does so for His namesake, for His glory. So whatever righteousness I walk in, it's by His grace because He's the one who leads me, and it's for His glory, it's for His namesake, not for my namesake. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So if you want to know if you're one of Jesus' sheep, don't ask yourself, did I pray a prayer one day a long time ago? Did I get baptized? Did I walk an aisle? Ask yourself, do I follow Jesus? Because He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If you're not following Jesus, then you might not be one of His sheep. So this is what the Lord requires of those who belong to Him. That we walk humbly with our God, which is faithfulness to Him. That we're not charting our own course. We're not fighting in our own strength. But that we walk humbly with our God. So that's one aspect of biblical goodness. Faithfulness to God. Second, biblical goodness is kindness or mercy. When verse 8 says that it is good to love kindness. He has told you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to love kindness? The word kindness there is hesed. It's this Hebrew word which speaks of God's covenant love. It's often translated as steadfast love or, or mercy. It's the kind of love and goodness and kindness that are backed by a promise. In the Bible... Goodness is practically interchangeable with words like kindness and mercy. For example, how often do we hear the refrain in the Old Testament, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love, His hesed, His kindness, His mercy endures forever. Titus 3, Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So God's goodness, His kindness, is, is demonstrated in tangible acts of mercy and generosity and provision and care. And the same must be true of our goodness. Mr. Rogers, I love him. 
Sesame Street, love them. K is for kindness. They talk a lot about kindness, but biblical goodness goes beyond politeness. And that's often what they mean by that, friendliness. I'm all for those things. Let's be polite. Let's be friendly. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not rude. So you can't be loving if you're being rude to people. So be friendly, be polite. But biblical goodness is about more than that. It's, it's that, but it's more. It's about being positively merciful to those we know are sinners because we know how merciful God has been to us in our sin. God's goodness is demonstrated in tangible acts of provision and care. Psalm 68.10 In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Goodness in Scripture almost always has some aspect of, of giving, of generosity. Oh God, in your goodness you provided for the needy. And our goodness toward others is meant to be just as practical. Proverbs 3, 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Goodness is not just something that exists in our hearts. It's something that we do. It's something that we give. It's something that we're told not to withhold from someone when we are able to give it to them. It's not always tangible. It's not always material. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So sometimes what people need from us may not be anything material. It may be a good word, a generous word, a kind word, a merciful word. Because we live around people, we walk around people every day who are weighed down with anxiety. But God's Word says that a good word makes them glad. So kind and merciful words and actions. This is another facet of biblical Goodness. So biblical goodness is faithfulness to God. It is kindness or mercy. And then third, it is justice. Biblical goodness is justice. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. So we cannot divorce kindness, mercy from righteousness or uprightness. Biblical goodness is equally concerned with both. And justice is righteousness that is directed toward others. That's all that justice is. It's when we take the uprightness with which we walk before God, the, the righteousness that God has declared us to be by grace through faith in Christ, and then we direct that and extend that out toward others. It's not just about doing right, but doing right by others. Here are a few examples. Proverbs 18, 5. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. So the opposite of goodness is partiality to the wicked or depriving the righteous of justice. Proverbs 20, verse 23. Equal, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. So lying in such a way that you would defraud someone is the opposite of biblical goodness. It is unjust. Proverbs 24, 23, partiality in judging is not good. 
Goodness is opposed to partiality in judging. And Amos 5, 5, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. So loving good and hating evil and establishing justice are all the same. They're, they're different phrases that all mean the same thing. You could think of justice and kindness as two sides of the same coin. Kindness is when I demonstrate goodness, generosity, provision, mercy, care, when it is in my power to do it. Justice is when I refuse to take advantage of someone or to let others take advantage of them when it's in my power to do so. So justice refuses to show partiality or to deprive someone of goodness, mercy, provision, care, simply because of their position, because of who they are. So think back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. What made that parable so shocking at the time was not only the mercy that the Samaritan showed, but also the impartiality that he showed. Because what people expected was for a Jewish man to show mercy to another Jewish man. What they did not expect was for a Samaritan to show mercy to a Jewish man, or vice versa. It's the impartiality that makes it so shocking and surprising. These were men who were supposed to hate each other, were supposed to be at odds with one another. But what happened is the Samaritan walks by, he sees the man laying there maybe in a pool of blood, who knows what shape he's in, he's half dead, and something happens inside his heart. He has compassion, and that compassion drives him to love. And the difference between obligation and love was that the compassion was the compassion that the Samaritan felt, and the goodness that he showed, both in mercy and in justice. So there's an important connection between compassion and goodness. Colby preached last week about compassion. What I want you to see is that goodness is the external expression of Compassion that's internal. Both are crucial. We, we have to pursue mercy, goodness, kindness, all these things, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a genuine compassion. There are plenty of people in the world who do, quote, good deeds. Not because they have compassion on anybody, but because it's good for their taxes, it's good for their... Resume, it's good for their reputation, for their brand, for their social media presence. Wouldn't it look great if we were able to say we built this well in Africa or we you know, helped this school with backpacks or whatever it is. Those are all perfectly good things to do. As long as we're doing them because we really feel compassion, not because we're trying to look good and be able to post it on Facebook and get 100 likes and have everybody say, wow, you're so great. So we, we, it ha there has to be this internal compassion that drives us, but, but we can't just have compassion and then stop there and say, boy, I just feel so sorry for all those people out there in the world who are so needy, and we never do anything about it. We have to work out that compassion in visible, audible, tangible acts of goodness to others. That doesn't mean that we all have to do the same amount, give the same amount, but it means that we all strive to provide and to care for those in need, to do justice for those who are vulnerable, and to be merciful to those who are weak. And even if we don't have a lot of energy or a lot of money, we can certainly do that with our words at the very least. 
this vision of what it means to follow Christ, to be good, is, is radical because we live in a world that is obsessed with getting when God calls us to be giving. And that's what goodness is. It's, it's giving ourselves away. It's easy for us to see others as objects who can do things for us. When God calls us to consider what can we do for them, it's easy for us to favor the strong and the wealthy and the powerful, often thinking that those are signs of God's blessing when God calls us to be impartial and to establish justice for those who are most vulnerable, those who could never repay us, widows, orphans, foreigners, and the oppressed. Over and over and over in His Word, God demonstrates a concern for those kind of people. And over and over and over in His Word, God reminds us that He is simply calling us to do for them what He has done for us. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible reminder to us that our only boast should be in the Lord. Not in ourselves, not in our own strength, not in our own righteousness, not in our own goodness or mercy or justice or faithfulness, but only in the mercy and righteousness and faithfulness of the One who gave Himself for us. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming that goodness is not something we could do on our own. We're proclaiming that our trust is in Him and Him alone. Which is why it's only fitting for someone who has genuinely trusted in Jesus and surrendered to Him to partake of the bread and cup. So I want to urge you, if you're here today and you say, I don't, I'm not sure where I stand with the Lord, then this is an opportunity for you to witness, to observe, uh, the visible proclamation of the Lord's Supper, not by taking it, but by watching it. The Lord's Supper is not only a proclamation of my communion with God through faith in Jesus, but also of my communion with God's people and love. And so I'm going to put up uh, a few verses from Romans 12 this morning. I want to urge you to examine yourself before we partake of the bread and cup Paul says in Romans 12, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So is there someone to whom you need to demonstrate goodness? Is there someone from whom you've been withholding kind acts or words? Is there someone from whom you've been withholding Justice. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to pause, to pray, to confess our sin, to turn from our sin, to ask the Lord to help us to do what He's commanded us to do in His Word, which is to let love be genuine, 
to hate what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. So let's take a moment, pause, and pray together. And I'll pray for us, and then our deacons will come forward and help us continue.